0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. How would you like for people to see you? Maybe you've never been asked that question. Maybe I'm asking you that right now. How would you like for people to see you? Well, do you know there's actually a wonderful narrative in our Bible where God is asked and God responds? Reminds me of one of my very, very favorite stories. It comes from the Old Testament. Once upon a time in a land far, far away, there lived a man named Moses. You may know him as Moshe. We call him Moses in our day and time. Moses had the daunting task of leading a group of misfit toys called the Israelites out of the empire of Egypt. And these people were stiff-necked. They were rebellious. They were grumbling. They had all sorts of issues with every aspect of Moses' leadership. And Moses leads them by God's provision and his protection out of Egypt into Egypt. what is supposed to be the entrance to the promised land, but they don't trust that God is good. That's essentially the error. They do not trust and believe that God is good. And so they say, no, we're not gonna go in. And as a result, they get to take laps in the wilderness for 38 years. It wasn't actually 40, it was 38 years God was gracious. And then as they're taking laps in the wilderness before they are actually able to go into the land, Moses goes up on the high holy mountain of God, Mount Horeb in Hebrew or Mount Sinai in Greek. And he has a long session with God. And the people down below start to think, I don't know what's happening to that guy. I never really liked him anyway, but um, I sure do like dancing naked around golden calves. Let's do one of those things. Okay, and so Aaron, the high priest of God, says, bring me all of your jewelry. And he fashions it into a golden calf, and they have happy fun time dancing all around this golden calf. And Aaron tells them, this is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. Like, how can this possibly go well? Well, it doesn't. While Moses is up on the mountain, God says, hey, this people of yours that you brought out of Egypt, yeah, they're down making nasty time, and I want you to go down and deal with it. So Moses and Joshua go down. Joshua says, ooh, I hear something that sounds like war in the camp. And Moses says, mm-mm, they're listening to Chuck Berry right now. This is very, very bad. In fact, he sees it, and his anger burns. He throws down the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. He takes the golden calf, and he says, Aaron, what have you done? And Aaron goes, it's the darnedest thing, man. They brought all this jewelry. They threw it in the fire, and a cow jumped out. It was incredible. To which Moses takes the golden calf, burns it down, grinds it into powder, pours it in the water, and makes them drink it. That's what I'm talking about. That's good leadership right there. And then Moses refashions new Ten Commandments, and God says, that's it. I've had it. Those people are the worst. I mean, they are so off. I'm done with them. I think I'll just kill them all. Moses says, whoa, 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 whoa. If you do that, And I would too if I were you, but if you do that, then the rest of the nations around us will say that there is no God or that he's not very good. So don't kill him. Moses intercedes on behalf of a people who do not deserve it. Hmm, that might be setting us up for something a little bit later on. God says, fine, then here's the deal. I'm going to send All of you into the promised land, and I'm gonna send my angel before you. He's gonna pave the way, and you're gonna be rich and famous, Moses. There's new nations that are gonna come from you, but I'm not going. I have had it with these people. And Moses says, Whoa, 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 an angel's not good enough. Either you go or we don't go. We're not going without you. Please, and Moses again intercedes sacrificially on behalf of the people. And God says, you know what, Moses? You're beginning to get it. I like you. Moses, it says, talked to God face to face like a friend talks to a friend. So Moses, seizing upon the opportunity, says, God, that's amazing. You are gonna go with this despite all of the reasons not to, despite all of the evidence and all of the um, demonstrations of unfaithfulness on our part, you're still going to be faithful? That's amazing. Show me your glory. God says, oh, yeah, no, I can't do that. If I show you my incommunicable attributes, i.e., my full unmitigated holiness or glory or my omnipresence or my omniscience, it will it will kill you. Can't do that. But here's what I am going to do, Moses. I'm going to place you up in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. And then the Lord is going to proclaim the Lord to you as he passes by. But you cannot see my face. You can only see the back of my robe. Let's pick up in the narrative because I want you to see how God answers the question. Hey, God, what are you like? What do you want other people to see when they see you? And God is going to respond with a list of communicable attributes. While we're studying this season, this series of the attributes of God, listen to how God describes his own attributes. I'm going to start in Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 5. Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord, that's Yahweh, that is the covenant-keeping name of God. God is not his name. God is his job description. Yahweh is his name. And Yahweh, roughly translated, means I am. I'm the is one. I am that which is. I am existence itself. That's my name. So, verse 5, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him, that's Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. (laughs) One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Yahweh descends, and what does he say? I am, I am, I am. Why? Because a sin-soaked world says he ain't. And it's right there in his name, he is. And the very fact that he is changes precisely everything. He proclaims the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. This is God giving us his communicable attribute description. The Lord, the Lord, I am, I am Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Isn't it interesting that the way God describes himself has everything to do with his interaction with humanity? We might have expected him to say, I am the sovereign creator. I hold the cosmos in my hand. I speak and light takes off across the galaxy. No. The way God wants to be understood is as how he relates to an undeserving human species. Now, he says, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, abounding, soaked, drenched in steadfast love is what the ESV translates that as. My other translations would translate it as covenant-keeping love or loving kindness. That happens to be my favorite translation of this word, loving kindness and faithfulness. Keeping loving kindness or steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Now that's an interesting tension that God sets up right here as his description of himself continues. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. That's how you know you've accurately understood who God is. You simply worship worship and he said if now i have found favor in your sight o lord please let the lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance and god does so as god is describing himself one of the things that he's going to say he is abounding in and that he keeps it always is his steadfast love or his loving kindness which is going to lead us to our big idea for the morning our attribute that I want to cover this morning it's also sort of a catch-all because it's how God describes himself God is loving kind now your spell checker will not like that word that's okay God is unconcerned with our grammar but God is loving kind that's candidly how most of us will not think of God It's not how we feel about God. It's not what we believe about God. We have different images and aspects and facets of God's character depending on our mood or circumstance. But what this text and our central passage really wants us to understand is that God is loving kind. Now, that's the time of Moses. Let's fast forward about 500 years to the king of Israel, the great good shepherd king of Israel, King David. And one of my favorite Loving kindness psalms is in Psalm 36. It's a short psalm. I'm gonna spend a little time walking through Psalm 36 and then we'll see how we can apply it and we'll move on. So turn your Bibles, if you've got them, to our central text for the morning, Psalm 36. I'm gonna read all of this in its entirety. I just want you to hear the heart of David. Psalm 36, the superscription there says, to the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. In other words, this regent, this monarch, wants for his people, the messianic community, to gather together to sing this corporately, confessionally. So let me just make one more pitch, one more plea. When we gather together as the church, the messianic community in this age, we're not merely checking a box of coming together to have done church. No, no, no. This is where we corporately confess the truths about who this God is because that deeply sinks into our very marrow as people. So Psalm 36, verse one. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. This sounds like the last junior high lock-in I attended. Verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep, man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is God's word. Now, if it's helpful to you, I want to quickly walk back through this psalm and i want to outline it with some v's just to sort of give you an idea of what we're going to cover very quickly verses one through four we are seeing david's description of vanity one through four is vanity then verses five and six are the vastness of his loving kindness the vastness of his loving kindness. Verses seven to nine are the value of his loving kindness. And then verses 10 to 12, the victory of his loving kindness. Yes, I'm pretty proud of that. Please find me later and say, hey, those four V's, I got them all. Great, probably not, but just maybe. So first of all, let's talk about vanity. David starts off and he says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. This is David giving us, how shall I say this, an ugly picture of an unattractive life. We have to remember this is 3,000 years ago, way, way back in the good old days of yore. And yet, this David is a pretty astute, observant uh, ruler as he's, a, as he's seen the character in the hearts of his people. He's seen what people are like in their depraved state. The human default is depravity deep within our personhood you see scripture directly opposes the recent notion that all people are inherently good that's a very recent idea the current thought is that all people are basically good but that we just need a better environment i don't mean like like global warming i mean the the circumstances around us to give us a better chance. We just need a little bit of a boost. We just need a little bit of a nudge. But the Bible says that the human heart is depraved above all things and that no one can understand it. That's Jeremiah 17, 9. That depravity within every single human soul, it wells up and it whispers which way we are to go and what we are to do. Secretly, softly and silently and compellingly, that voice of our depravity, of our flesh, whispers to us, one of my favorite preachers of the 20th century, early 20th century, a guy named David Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he says this seemingly contradictory quote, but I think it's beautiful and wonderful. He says, our spiritual problem stems from the fact that we listen to ourselves rather than talk to ourselves. Our problem is that we listen to ourselves rather than talk to ourselves. Well, what's the difference? Ah, There's a marked difference. We listen to the sinful thoughts of our depravity that come from our fleshly hearts rather than telling ourselves the truth of the gospel. This stuff just comes out of us as we lay on our beds at night, as we're just consumed with with machinations and thoughts are running wild, unhemmed, rather than we deliberately and intentionally telling ourselves, this is who God is, this is what God is like, this is what God loves. He describes a person, David does, that can only listen and heed the stirrings of a depraved soul and react accordingly. The wicked person assumes that there is no God. Or if there is a God, he's not the kind of God that really cares all that much about sin at all. If a person does not fear God, then they have, of course, no fear of judgment whatsoever. And I think we can all uh, just imagine An entire civilization and a society, that not only do they not fear God, they they therefore do not fear any sort of judgment whatsoever. An ancient, ancient Roman poet, Cassiodorus, wrote this. He said, The evil soul whispers to itself, believing that God does not tend to mortal affairs. I'm wondering if there are some names and faces flashing through your mind as I read that quote. The evil soul whispers to itself believing that God does not tend to mortal affairs or <laughs> if that person happens to be you. David's point as he observes humanity around him is that no one is above this kind of condition. We are all prone to these kinds of tendencies. In fact, probably the correct translation of Psalm 36 verse 1 is David saying transgression speaks to the wicked deep in my heart is probably more accurate so David understands that even he is prone to this certainly we get to the end of David's life and we see that he acts upon this whisper of his soul rather than telling himself the truth he's listening to the whisper of his own depravity so let me just start to put this right in your lap as it's fallen on me this week as I've considered this have you ever considered some type of sin and in the depths of your being within nanoseconds you rationalized it because I mean, come on, God's probably really not going to notice, or he won't care, or even if he does notice and care, he's probably not going to do anything about it. Yeah, I do that like 24-7. I'm going to confess that openly because I'm betting I'm not the only one, and if I am the only one, I sure liked working here. (laughs) But I'm betting you can all relate to this as well. It's not that our hearts are necessarily hardened against God. It's just that in our default wickedness, We like to flatter or elevate ourselves to behave as if he isn't. Because again, our behavior is based on the bedrock of our belief. But his name is that he is. So do we really functionally and practically believe that? Because that default assumption about God and what he's like, the person that David is describing here as vain, is always active in deceit and trouble. He has no choice. He has, it's the only way of life that makes sense to him. It is actually his religion, his organizing narrative. But our story is that we have a God that is, and that he is loving kind, which is going to lead us now to David responding interestingly, the vastness of his loving kindness. Let me just again read very quickly verses 5 and 6. Your steadfast love. The word in Hebrew is chesed. Now, you're gonna have to learn this word and say it with me. Say, chesed, chesed. You'll know you said it right if the person in front of you goes, oh, what the, what was that? Yeah, chesed. It gets all over you, baby. That's how chesed works. Chesed, you gotta have a little bit of a guttural clear your throat there. Chesed, God's loving kindness. This is, David's gonna use this word over and over again. Your chesed, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast you save, O Lord. The vastness of his loving kindness. We might expect, having seen David just describe this vanity of living in sin and wickedness and deceit, we might expect King David to say, now stop it. That's very bad. It's immoral. It's indecent. It's going to get you in trouble. Now stop it. But David doesn't do that. David responds by talking about the greatness, the wonder, the enormity of what God is like. And so the first thing he describes is God's chesed. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Other than the actual name of God, I think chesed is the most important word of the Old Testament. That's a big matzo ball just dropped in your soup, and I know that. But I'll stand by it. Because chesed, loving kindness, steadfast love, covenant keeping love, covenant mercy, whatever you want to use as your translation, loving kindness, is all of God's goodness, his compassion, his mercy, his kindness, his love, all aimed directly and specifically at you. It's not just some general quality about God. It is all of those things, his goodness, kindness, compassion, mercy, tenderness, love, wisdom, all of it aimed squarely at the chest of the person sitting in your chair. That's his loving kindness. You'll also see it translated all these different ways, mercy, covenant keeping, love, and of course, loving kindness, all these different ways. But the point is that it has the same general nuance for all of that. We hear this at least 200 times throughout the Old Testament that God is loving kind. Yes, the Old Testament frequently portrays God as a God of wrath, of justice, of anger, and He is. But more than two hundred times, yes, the Old Testament portrays God as loving-kind. This attribute of loving kindness extends, David says, to the heavens. It is a characteristic that fills the created order. It is evident all around us. Saint Augustine, one of my heroes in the faith from the fourth century, Augustine said this: "The clouds of the heavens are preachers of the word of truth." I know they're just clouds, and we in our modern age can explain the water vapors that have congealed around, but the Bible says, and Augustine is reiterating, that in those aspects of creation, we are to be reminded of God's loving kindness to, as it were, be hugged by a cloud when you walk outside. Just walk outside. Just feel the embrace. God is good. He's for me. He loves me. We can be reminded by that simply by creation. He responds by thanking God for his wisdom and giving God praise. He isn't speaking in general platitudes. He is directly thanking God as a person that he actually knows and that he actually has a relationship with. Unlike an atheist or an agnostic, who, when they feel grateful, they've got nobody to thank. But David says, oh, this is you. I feel so thankful, so grateful. I thank you personally because you're a person. David doesn't call it this specifically, but of course, here in these two verses is the gospel. Every single human person is wicked and depraved by default and by nature. And God's righteousness and his judgments seek out the entire creation. Nothing is hidden from his view. If that's all there was to it, man would be justly obliterated. <laughs> but the vastness of his loving kindness. Because of God's loving kindness, man and beast, he saves. He doesn't have to, and he's not obligated to. He's merciful. He wants to. And so the vastness of his loving kindness leads us to the value of his loving kindness. Let me read verses 7 to 9. How precious is your steadfast love, your your. your chesed oh god the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights for with you is the fountain of life in your light do we see light david asks the rhetorical question how precious is your loving kindness but it's really not a question as much as it's an exclamation oh lord your loving kindness is so very precious this aspect of God's loving kindness is the place in which all human beings take refuge from all of the other attributes of God, such as wrath and justice and righteousness and holiness. It is his loving kindness that shelters us. It's both and. His language here is beautiful, it's poetic, it's compelling. And he says that God's loving kindness extends to all people in the world. However, there is a unique appropriation and an appreciation and an acceptance only enjoyed by believers. He's talking about this complete joy and euphoria. The necessary outcome of those who are thinking rightly and feeling deeply about God is this joy and delight. And David says something incredible. He says it's like a feast, where I'm just sensorily overwhelmed, like I get to drink of the river of your delights. And the word for delight there is Eden. David says something incredible. When I think about how much you love me, it is likened to the Garden of Eden that we lost because of the stain of sin that we will one day have again, Revelation 22 says, we will enjoy the river of life. But in the meantime, we get to drink deeply from the river of Eden, as it were, simply by contemplating, by concentrating on the chesed, the loving kindness of our God. I know this is just poetry. and You may be thinking, yeah, 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 yeah I got problems. Not as big as David did. Not as big as David did. David was surrounded by enemies, usurpers, by treasonous children, by all kinds of immorality and depravity. And yet, he says, when I think about how much you love me, it is like drinking from the river of Eden. That's instructive. In fact, St. Ambrose puts it this way. It is good to be inebriated on the cup of God's salvation. Now, I know that we don't want to talk about inebriation in here. But if we are inebriated on the cup of God's salvation, Ambrose was right. What a great, delightful thing that is. How valuable is God's loving kindness? It is the fountain of life itself. Through God's light, we can actually begin to make sense of the world around us. In other words, it is to be the most precious thing to us as a person. Peter's going to pick up on this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. He says, So you who believe, see his value to you who believe he is precious. God's loving kindness is valuable, and so then it gives us victory. Verses 10 to 12. Oh, continue your chesed, your loving kindness to those who know you, who Yada, who have intimate experiential familiarity and understanding with you and your righteousness to the upright of heart let not the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away there the evildoers lie fallen they are thrust down unable to rise david says it's just like there is evil in the world and it is always coming from me for me, But his approach is to be repeated by us. He does not turn to philosophy to explain all of the evil of the circumstances away. He doesn't turn to philosophy like every other human race or human culture has tried. David doesn't go to philosophy. David goes to worship. Doesn't obliterate the circumstance. Might not even change the circumstance. In fact, it probably won't. But what worship does do is change you. And that's what God is most interested in. His prayer is that God's loving kindness will continue to those who know God, that God will give righteousness to the upright of heart because God's righteousness is the currency of his kingdom. In view of God's mercy, David prays, please don't let me stumble or my enemies overtake me. And David's comment by the end of this psalm are essentially that his prayer has already been answered. His perspective is like that of God's. He says, the evil are judged and they are thrown down already, even though they don't know it. Their own thinking is consuming them. So what are we to take away from this wonderful, quick psalm? The attribute is God's loving kindness. The big idea is that God is loving kind. His loving kindness is all of his goodness, all of his kindness, all of his compassion, all of his mercy, all of his love, aimed directly at you and me as individual persons. And of course, corporately, as the messianic community, as the church. But just three very quick points, and I mean very quick points because I take these directly from the text itself. Number one, his loving kindness is vast. Every time we walk outside or experience some aspect of creation, we have the opportunity to preach a little sermon to our own soul and say, my goodness, he loves me. He loves me. You may not think about experiencing and enjoying creation that way, but we are intended to. One day, all of the filters that keep that from happening, naturally as it were, will be removed and we will see and sense the embrace of God in creation. We want to talk to ourselves, meaning tell ourselves the truth, rather than listen to all the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and grasping that comes from our flesh and from our depravity. The heavens declare the glory of God, David says in Psalm 19. Their line goes out. But we have to be deliberate and intentional to listen and to look to perceive it. Number two, His loving kindness is valuable. God actually does care immensely about the goings-on of mortals just like you and me. And what's more, He is good. And his loving kindness is aimed at us. And so it really is the most precious thing in the cosmos to those that believe and who bend their minds to comprehend. This omnipotent God also loves me. The most valuable possession, thing in my possession, is also the one thing that I can never lose because I'm not the one that clings to it. But rather he clings to me and that's joy. The most amazing precious thing that I have, I can never lose because it is that one that is actually holding me number three his loving kindness is victorious god gets it done and he does so by loving people despite all the many reasons not to all the different evidences and and pieces of of uh, demonstration of why he should not he still chooses to he gets it done by sending people that he loves to love the people that he loves that's what we're here doing this morning certainly a day of final judgment is coming and the wrath of God will be poured out on all those who reject this loving kindness but for now God offers us the privilege and the opportunity to participate in this identification if you will where we get to demonstrate indeed we get to resemble and reflect the love of God to others in this age and invite God and ask God and beg God that he would do for them what he has done for us to show and to dispense deeply his loving kindness to all of us God is loving kind all we really need to do to get a perfect picture of that is to see the person of Jesus Christ I mean look at his life look how he's always portrayed what he says and what he does He is the perfect walking around incarnation, the image of the invisible God in human form, who was the perfect picture of loving kindness. He is so much so that He goes to the cross undeservingly for those who deserve it. A perfect picture. When God says, I show loving kindness to generations and generations, but I will by no means forgive the iniquity. How can that tension exist? It is the loving kindness incarnate in Jesus Christ. And so for those of us who believe, what is our response? Well, it's an ancient response. About 250 years after King David, we have a prophet named Micah. And in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, God says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice to one another, to love chesed, to love loving kindness and to walk humbly with your god i love that passage we are to be aware of understand and to love loving kindness to cherish it to choose it because of who our god is and what he has done so let me invite you this morning if you're not a believer then you're still trying to appease an angry god i can just tell you what the truth of what we believe is god's word you never ever will Or you can embrace the fact that he is appeased and satisfied already because of loving kindness incarnate personified in the person of Jesus. And I invite you to believe. For the rest of you who have been believers since King David wrote this psalm, I want to invite you to also rethink your thinking and to recognize the loving kindness with which he loves you. That he's not merely taking you to heaven one day when you die, but the God of the universe loves you he is kind and he's aiming all of that goodness squarely at you may we believe it may we behave it let's pray together father we do thank you for who you are for what you have done in christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another we thank you for this gospel we thank you for this passage that has revealed yet more clearly your nature your essence your character what you're like and what you like So I do pray, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, that you will move by your Spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus, that they will believe that He is alive. In so doing, they will step out of death and into life themselves, and they will begin to fully receive and believe that you love them. For the rest of us, Father, would you encourage us anew that you show loving kindness to us in ways we don't fully appreciate and may never fully understand but help us to rest in it all the same. Thank you for loving us, God. Help us to love you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus and in the power of your spirit. Amen. I want to remind you that we've got someone here who would love to pray with you. If there's anything you'd like to be praying about, this is Jim. I'm going to ask you to stand for a word of benediction, and we will be dismissed. Now may the Lord bless you, and may he keep you. May he show his steadfast, covenant-keeping, loving kindness to you, and would you believe it?